Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 16. We'll look at verses 13, really through verse 20 today. Uh, the text is printed there in the bulletin also. Um, so a lot of ink has been spilled over this passage, this paragraph, the first one that's printed here in the bulletin. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled through the church's history, and uh, in fact, vast parts of the church have been at war over it for centuries. You might, um, you might even say maybe blood has been spilled over passages like this, this one in particular, um, because after the Roman church began exalting the position of the pope, which is a reality that we've sort of lived with for almost 2,000 years now, uh, having a Roman pope, uh, after they started doing that, they, they turned to this passage as a proof text. Uh, saying that it teaches the supremacy of Peter among the apostles, using it to justify their idea of the Pope as uh, something of a, a supreme super bishop kind of guy. <clears throat> and the reformers, uh, you know, we're a reformed Presbyterian church, so this is our vein. Uh, the reformers have sought to recover the original meaning of the passage, which really isn't about Peter as uh, the first Pope or something like that, uh, or apostolic succession or papal infallibility or hierarchical authority or anything like that. Uh, Peter is something of a representative of the other disciples here. Uh, He voices what they are all coming to believe and think about Jesus. So he isn't unique, really. He's not supreme. He's not even really first among equals here. He's just a great example of a regular old everyday garden variety sinner who confesses that Jesus is the Christ. So this is actually a fantastic passage for focusing our attention on Jesus. So let's talk about what it means that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one promised in the Hebrew Scriptures. And let's talk about what that means for sinners like us to be able to confess that truth. Uh, I've printed three paragraphs here in the bulletin because it's significant that all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they keep these three paragraphs together. Because there's a theme, there's a, there's a context, a contextual theme running through them. Uh, we're just going to read the first two of these uh, this morning. And really, we're just going to focus on the first one in the sermon. So <clears throat> there you go. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, bless us with a true knowledge of your son, true knowledge of you in him. Turn our thoughts from the things of men to the things of God by the work of your spirit, as we consider your word together now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is saying something quite remarkable. He is recognizing something very special about Jesus, something unique, really. Uh, And that recognition is not at all common. Um, It's not at all natural, we would say. the, The scriptures teach that it's a spiritual work of God in us when we recognize and confess that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus himself teaches this very thing right here. He sets up this teaching moment. Uh, First of all, in an interesting place, he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, uh, which is an old city that's been renamed in honor of Caesar, the Roman emperor, right? So imperial religion claimed that Caesar was of divine descent, that Caesar was the son of God, the language they used, which gave Caesar the right to rule the world. It's, it's actually fairly common throughout history and around the world for dictators and supreme leaders uh, to claim absolute power on such grounds, to claim some sort of divine descent, to be some sort of son of God, right? That's common. You've got world leaders, supreme leaders today who claim that same thing. So, so it's a direct challenge to worldly authorities to confess that Jesus is the true son, of the living God, that is to say, the God who is alive, the actual God, uh, the only real God. It's also very good news that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, good news that the Caesars of this world can only make false claims of divinity and divine authority. And that challenge, that good news, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that, that challenge to worldly authorities, it's implied here by locating this confession in Caesarea Philippi. It's a dangerous place to be making a confession that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's a confession that needs to be made wherever we are, and Jesus invites his disciples to make it whatever the case. First, uh, he asks about what, what, what's the general public saying? And that's not because he wants a boost to his ego, like, you know, checking on how many likes your social media posts got. Um, he, he asks this as a way of inviting his disciples to reflect personally on the most important question that they could possibly consider. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And ultimately, he's going to ask them, who do you say, who do you say that I am? <clears throat> right, so Son of Man, here in verse 13, it's Jesus' favorite self-designation. Uh, he most often refers to himself this way as the Son of Man. In, uh, in the Gospels that we have recorded, uh, maybe because it's ambiguous. Like he, he could simply be referring to himself as a human being, right? just the son of a guy, son of a man. Or he might be claiming a special status revealed by the prophets, 
a special kind of understanding about who this son of man would be. Is he just a man or is he the man? Uh, You're invited to learn about him and confess what you believe about that. So the disciples responded, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So everybody has to admit, the general public has to admit, there's something interesting about Jesus. There's something special about Jesus. And the general public has some culturally shaped perceptions about that, about what that means. So for these Jewish disciples, their imagination, and for, for all the people in, uh, in the area, their imagination really would have been shaped by the stories that are found in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, right? So John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and the prophets, these are important figures to the people. And really, they are important figures, biblically speaking, according to the scriptures that they had. So identifying Jesus as someone like one of them, you know, seeing some shared traits, uh, might be quite an honor to most people, but it actually falls short of confessing the truth about Jesus, the unique truth about Jesus. He said to them, well, that's fine, but who do you all, talking to the disciples, says it plural, who do you all say that I am? <clears throat> to confess that Jesus is a very important person is not enough. Everyone is invited to wrestle with the reality of who Jesus is. It's the most important question you could possibly consider. Who do you say that Jesus is? Your answer to that question has implications for all of life, for every single moment of your life, literally. Every single moment of your life, forever, for eternity. So that's not to say, hey, you know what? Pop quiz, that's what life is, is to quiz. It's a big test. Uh, and the right answer is, Jesus is the Christ, and you better get that right, or else, here, look, Peter got an A+, plus, just copy off of him, <laughs> right? Um, Jesus himself says that knowing him, knowing who he is, as he's really made himself known, revealed in the scriptures, Knowing him is eternal life. So do you know him as he's truly revealed himself? Who do you say that he is? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now we'll consider what this particular language means um, in just a minute. But first you should realize uh, Jesus approves this confession. Jesus celebrates it. You get maybe a lot of people in the world saying, well, Jesus wasn't really self-aware of, him, of himself as any kind of divine person or important or special or unique, right? Uh, no, Jesus is fully aware of who he is. He makes himself known to his people. And when we start to become aware of who he really is, it's good, and he celebrates that. And he confirms it. That's what he does here with Peter. So more on that in a minute. Let's talk about what Peter's confession here means. On behalf of the disciples, really, is Peter's just sort of speaking on their behalf, saying the conclusion that they've started to arrive at. Um, they've come to believe something about Jesus, particularly that he is the Christ. So Christ uh, is not just his last name or something, you know, when you cuss and you say Jesus Christ, it's not just what you say, right? Um, it's a title. Christ is a title. That describes a singular figure. It's a, a unique person foretold by the Hebrew Scriptures 
Christ, Christos, is the Greek word, and it translates a Hebrew word, Messiah. And the meaning of that Hebrew word, Messiah, is anointed one. So the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, he's the one who is specially anointed by God, anointed with God's own spirit to act on God's behalf in the world. So in the Hebrew scriptures... You know, certain leaders among God's people were anointed with oil as a picture of this you know, ultimate special anointing of the Messiah with the Holy Spirit. So prophets and priests and kings were sometimes anointed to speak on God's behalf or act on God's behalf in the world. The Messiah would be the prophet, the high priest, the great king, not just of the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, but of the whole world. So it's significant that Matthew and the apostles uh, throughout the the rest of the New Testament use not the word Messiah. They use the Greek translation, Christ, rather than, you know, transliterating the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a way of recognizing that he came not just for the Jews. He came also for the Greeks which was sort of representative of the whole rest of the world. It was the world's language at the point, right? Uh, Greek. Um, Also for the Gentiles. Also for the nations. People like us. The Christ would come to reveal God. That's what a prophet does. He would come to reveal God to us Gentiles as our prophet. The Christ would carry the nations into God's presence, which is what a priest does, as our high priest. The Christ would defend and lead and rule as our king. So as Brian read from Psalm 2, our Old Testament reading, you know, Yahweh, the one true God, declares that his anointed king, his his Messiah, his Christ, is his own son who would inherit the nations and rule to the ends of the earth. So everyone is invited to get on board with that. So Peter recognizes the promises of Yahweh as coming to fulfillment in Jesus, and he confesses Jesus to be this Christ, this son of the living God. Now, Um, Peter really does recognize this about Jesus. Peter really does believe this about Jesus. And Jesus goes on to affirm this as a real work of God in Peter's life. But at the same time, Peter is speaking better than he knows. Peter does not fully understand who Jesus is. Peter does not fully understand what Jesus came to do the role of the Christ, the activities of the Christ in this world. Peter doesn't fully believe and accept the significance of Jesus being the Christ. This is clear from the very next paragraph, which we read, right? When Jesus begins to tell his disciples clearly, this is what the Christ came to do. Suffer and die and be raised on third day. Peter resists that. And he insists that such things surely must not happen to Jesus. Jesus identifies this as a worldly, earthly, unbelieving conception of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. These are the thoughts of men, not the thoughts of God. Peter has assumptions about what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And some of those assumptions are wrong. He has assumptions about what the Christ should do. They're dead wrong, antithetical to Jesus and his mission. So much so that Jesus says he is acting like God's worst enemy, the devil himself. He says, 
Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So much for the idea of Peter's infallible papal authority, right? Uh, Here he is messing it up big time. Peter is just a run-of-the-mill garden variety sinner. And that's great news for the rest of us run-of-the-mill garden variety sinners. It means you can be a sinner and at the same time recognize the truth about Jesus and make a true confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the kind of confession that Jesus himself celebrates as a blessing from his Father. It means you can be a sinner and at the same time be in a real relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The old theologians uh, have this great Latin term for this idea, and I'll probably butcher the pronunciation of it, but it's simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously just and sinner. And that describes God's people. That describes us. We can be righteous, just, and sinful at the same time. We're prone to believe that, uh, no, no, you can only be one or the other. The two cannot possibly coexist in the same person. If you're a real big sinner, you can't also be just and righteous in God's sight. And especially when we become honest with ourselves and and more familiar with our own sin, we can despair of being considered righteous by God or being accepted by God. We can despair of that the more you come to know your sinfulness. But contrary to our intuition, we really can be righteous and sinful at the same time because God reveals that he's the one who declares us righteous, who justifies us. Not because of our own righteousness, in spite of our unrighteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. So, as you trust in Jesus, as you are united to him by faith through the work of his Holy Spirit, his righteousness is imputed to you freely. It's counted as yours, even though you're a sinner. So, so like Peter... Throughout this life, there will be ways that uh, you resist Jesus because you really are a sinner. Ways in which you lean on your own understanding that run contrary to God's revelation. Ways that you dishonor the Lord or disobey the Lord. But being a sinner does not negate the true reality that, that you recognize and confess. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. Being a sinner does not negate the reality of your relationship with God because that's given to you as a gift through God's grace in Jesus. In spite of the fact that you were and you are a sinner. That grace is what Jesus names and celebrates in Peter's life. So hearing Peter's confession, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So whenever a sinner confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Spirit-anointed Son of God, come into the world to restore our relationship with God, 
that confession, that recognition of who Jesus is, that faith, that trust, does not come from our nature as sinners. It, it does not arise from mere, mere earthly understanding. All the logic in the world, all the reason in the world won't get you to this point. This is a supernatural, spiritual revelation. It is the gracious work of God the Father to bless you. God blesses sinners with a real, personal, relational knowledge of Jesus. That relationship is so contrary to the usual interests of sinners that that relationship is impossible apart from the gracious work of God. And Jesus is saying, God really does that work in sinners. That's exactly what he's done in Peter here. That's what Jesus is celebrating, the fact that, that God does this kind of gracious work in sinners. When a sinner confesses that Jesus is the Christ, it's a sinner making a good confession. It's like night and day coexisting together in a person, right? It's crazy. Maybe it's not supposed to be that way. Day is supposed to eradicate the night, just as the righteousness of Christ is supposed to eradicate our sin. And one day, as we come into the presence of his glory and see him face to face, that will be true. But it's a reality for us in this life. Day and night coexist in us. Jesus reveals that to us in his relationship with Peter and his relationship with the other disciples. We are simultaneously believing and unbelieving. We are both faithful and faithless, both spiritual and worldly. That describes us. The fact that we are not only unbelieving, only faithless, only worldly, but that we are also believing and faithful and spiritual, that's a reality, and that reality is the gift of God's grace. God is merciful, and he is gracious to bless us, we who are prone to resist the knowledge of him, to bless us with a true knowledge of himself that utterly changes the nature of our life and eternity. We do know him, and this knowledge of him will change our lives in many ways, even though we still lapse and revert to our old sinful ways every day. This is the blessing of knowing that Jesus is the Christ. Knowing that our relationship with God is not dependent on us, but that it, it's dependent on him. This is the blessing of knowing that. Our personal relational knowledge of God never depended on our flesh and blood. It didn't hang on our you know, sinful people becoming sinless. If you know who God is, it's because of God's initiative, God's work, dependent entirely on him making himself known to you in Christ, the work of his spirit in causing you to recognize and confess Jesus. And if your knowledge of God is dependent on his grace, then blessed are you. Blessed indeed. Because you can be assured that your sin, even though it continues throughout this life, your sin doesn't stop God's love. And it never will. It never can. It never could in the first place. Your sin doesn't stop God from sending Jesus into the world to live and die for you. It doesn't stop God from forgiving you and reconciling you to himself. Your sin never will stop God from being gracious and merciful to you. This is what we see in Peter's life and in his confession here. 
And this is why Jesus takes this opportunity not to say, well done, Peter, you really sleuthed that one out. You figured it out, who I am, right? But to celebrate the Father's gracious gift and to say this, this gracious work of God, that's the unstoppable heart of the church. This is what he means by renaming uh, Simon, renaming him Peter. Uh, By the way, God frequently renames his people in the scriptures. You see that happen a lot. In the Bible, God renames his people. So there's a great little demonstration of Jesus' divine authority to go ahead and rename somebody. And it is a great encouragement to us that this God, you know, what's involved with God renaming someone? The triune God of love, a God merciful and gracious, is the one who puts a new name on us. He's the one who tells us who we are to him who declares our identity as his beloved children in Christ. It's good news that, that Jesus renames people like this. He says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Peter, uh, you may know, is the Greek word for rock. Petra, is, uh, Petros is the male version of that, a masculine version of that. If you're, if you're going to build a building, right, it's best to build on solid rock. Common knowledge. So that's the metaphor Jesus is using here. Jesus is going to build his church on solid rock, so to speak. And he has just renamed Simon Rock to make his point. Not because Simon, you know, is a giant of a man with a smoldering glare, right? But because of his grace, he has renamed Simon Rock. He's clearly not saying Simon, you're such a remarkable and uh, just a solid individual. It makes perfect sense to build the church around you. Uh, It's actually somewhat of a humorous renaming. It doesn't take very long for us to see Peter acting like anything but a rock, like five verses later when he opposes Jesus and Jesus calls him the devil. Uh, Nevertheless, here's the amazing thing. Jesus is building his church around Peter, in a sense, not Peter as Mr. Impressive, not Peter as Mr. Extra Special Holy Guy. Rather, Jesus is, Jesus is the one building his church around Peter as sinful believer. Sinful believer. If Peter is the prime example of someone who is simul justus et peccator, <laughs> at the same time righteous and sinful, then we have great encouragement for our faith that the church is always going to exist. The church is always going to persevere because the foundation of the church is not the perfection of bad people who really can't be perfected. The foundation of the church is the grace of God abounding to to sinners. The church is made up of sinful believers who trust in Christ. That grace, that grace is something we can really hold on to, like desperately clinging to a rock when the wind and waves are beating at you. Jesus is building his church, a people that belong to him, body and soul, and he is building this church around Peter, in a sense, around his confession, and really around the other disciples, building on the word of the apostles. The New Testament says their word is the foundation of the church. Building it around the testimony of God's grace to sinners like them to sinners like us. 
the gates of hell, he says, will not prevail. The gates of hell, that's literally uh, the gates of Hades. It's a different word than hell. It should be translated Hades. <clears throat> uh, it's the place of the dead, right? It's not the place where we sort of think about hell in movies and literature where, you know, it's demons and all bad guys live there. Uh, it's a metaphor, right? It's an image of death. Gates of Hades is like saying a place of death as an otherwise inescapable reality. You can't get out of it. There's gates. They're locked. Death is inescapable. By reason of our own sin, we would be locked into an eternity of death, separated from God with no hope of escape into the realms of eternal life. But Jesus came to give us his own everlasting relationship with the Father. That's what Christianity is about. It's his relationship with the Father, that perfect relationship granted to us, shared with us, opened up to us. That life with God that endures forever because it's eternal life. That's what it is. He came to give it to us. And all our sin and even death itself can't stop him from doing that. It's a bold promise, very, very bold promise for Jesus to make um, a bold claim that his work will overcome death itself. I mean, it's a presumptuous claim if he's not truly the son of God in the flesh. Who do you think that he is? Who do you say that he is? What's your confession about him? Jesus is the Christ come into the world to save sinners. And as a sinner who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Peter has been blessed by God. And that gracious blessing cannot be stopped, not even by Peter's fairly bold and persistent sin, not even by death itself. God's grace is the more, more bold, more persistent. And as the Song of Solomon says, God's love is stronger than death. Jesus tells us that God's grace even goes so far as to conscript sinful human beings into his work and privileges. Certainly, Peter did not deserve to be considered righteous by God, saved, let alone told that he would be part of the formation of Christ's church. But the gracious blessing and privilege here can hardly be imagined, uh, and I don't think it could be overstated. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. God alone is the judge of heaven and earth. God alone is the one who forgives sins because sins are against him alone or relational violation against God alone. But here, Jesus is giving us such a special relationship with him through his spirit, such a close relationship with him that we may extend or withhold God's own forgiveness of sins. Uh, he says this maybe more clearly in John's gospel. The risen Lord in uh, John 20 appears to his disciples and says, as he's sort of uh, commissioning them to go forth in his name and his spirit, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. <clears throat> so, of course, this doesn't mean, you know, uh, however you feel that day, you know, sort of arbitrarily, now you have permission to forgive sins or not forgive sins, whatever. You, for selfish purposes, you know, for your own advancement to manipulate other people, go ahead and, you know, take control of divine forgiveness, right? Um, that would be the height of corruption of the gospel. But it is granted to us to know God's forgiveness in Christ personally, 
and to proclaim that forgiveness to other repentant sinners. He gives us a real participation in what he is doing, his work in the world, especially in the most important work of integrating people into his church, into his body, into his kingdom. So you, as a sinful saint, as Simul Eustace et Peccator, as an unbelieving believer, as someone who confesses Christ yet also struggles to fully accept him or obey him, you are given authority to proclaim the gospel of God's forgiveness in Christ's name, to tell others about the Father's gracious work toward people like us. When Jesus forbids his disciples here at the end of that chapter, uh, uh, paragraph, I mean, when uh, he forbids his disciples to tell others about him, don't say I'm the Christ to anybody, you know, uh, that's a temporary feature. I know some of you wish that it counted for all of us that Jesus for, you know, would forbid us from speaking about him. It would make it easier to get along in life in this world. <clears throat> uh, that's a temporary feature. A temporary feature of his time just leading up to his death. He has his reasons for that. But since then, after his death, after his resurrection, he has commanded them here, these disciples, and all of his disciples, to proclaim and teach everything that he's revealed to us. That's where we are now. We confess the Christ, to whom the apostles bore witness, whose testimony we have in the scriptures of the uh, the New Testament. And as we speak their words after them, words that describe Jesus, truly, and his grace, the church grows and advances in the world, and nothing can stop it, not even death. Even though we die, the church goes on. It'll be here long after we are. Even if we die in the very act of bearing witness, the old saying goes that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the church goes on. Never again will the whole world be separated from God in death. Now and forever, life with God in the name of Jesus is proclaimed. So this is the most important question you or anyone else could ever consider. Who do you say Jesus is? Blessed are those who confess that he is the Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is sometimes very difficult for us to live as justified sinners. Help us to be honest about our sinfulness so that all the more we can celebrate the gift of your righteousness freely given to us in Christ. We pray that you would teach us always to find the assurance of our relationship with you in Christ, through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of your Son. Help us to confess him truly, to perceive your blessing us in him, to know the privilege of participating in his life with you and in his work in this world. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, the spirit of Christ, to proclaim your forgiveness in his name. Amen.